This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Uh, welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this program known as The Takeout. However you find us, podcast platform, CBSN, great radio stations around the country, Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, thank you for finding us. Thanks for hanging out with us. Again, welcome to my dining room. I promise this show will return to restaurants at some point this calendar year. I don't know when it is. I'm guessing it's just a hunch sometime in maybe late summer, early fall. But until then, we're still in my dining room. Uh, no time to waste. We've got a phenomenal guest and a really big topic. And I want to let you know about this topic in general. It's climate change, global warming, everything that our planet and human civilization faces. I've mentioned on this program before, I also do another podcast. It's a weekly documentary podcast known as The Debrief. Well, we're doing two episodes on this topic. So one has already come out this week. You can find it on all the best podcast platforms focused on the planet. Next week's episode is going to be focused on people, technology, possible remedies or replies to what human civilization quite negatively, has set in motion here on planet Earth. And to help us in all of those endeavors, we have a great guest. Her name is Elizabeth Colbert. She is a staff writer for The New Yorker. She is also the author of this amazing book, which I've been reading for the better part of a week, The Sixth Extinction. If you're watching on CBSN, you can see it. I'm lifting it up to my camera. Look at that little golden thing there, ladies. What does it say? Winner of the Pulitzer Prize. She's this month, not this month, but in February, came out with another book, Under a White Sky, a continuation of the work she did in the sixth extinction. Elizabeth, it's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So for the audience's benefit, uh, let's go back to the sixth extinction because uh, it's a sobering book. Uh, I won't say it bummed me out, but it certainly leveled my sense of enthusiasm about the near term. In brief, help my audience understand what the sixth extinction might be and how much do you, does humankind bear responsibility for it? Well, the idea behind the sixth extinction is there, you know, as anything that has sixth in the title suggests, there have been five major mass extinctions in, in the last half a billion years or so. So since, you know, since animals evolved, basically. And the last one, which people are familiar with, was the one that did end the dinosaurs, ended the reign of the dinosaurs about 66 million years ago. And there's a, a pretty broad consensus that that was caused by an asteroid impact. 
And now we're in a moment of very elevated extinction rates. Uh, we don't necessarily realize that because you know, we hear of one species going extinct or another species going extinct. We think that's sort of part of you know, life, but in fact, extinction rates over most of the history of life on this planet have been so low that you should not know of a species going extinct basically during your lifetime. So we all on some, in some level are in, you know, in touch with this phenomenon, even if we don't really exactly recognize it. And extinction rates are so high that if they continued at this level for a few hundred more years, several hundred more years, we would reach extinction rates that are comparable to these really disastrous events in the history of life. And that is sort of, you know, the idea as it were of the sixth extinction that we are on the verge of another major mass extinction uh, unless we change course pretty dramatically. And the question of, you know, how much we're responsible for it is, you know, pretty much 100%. Uh, we would not be seeing these elevated extinction rates. We have no reason to believe we would be seeing these elevated extinction rates right now, were it not for all of the ways that we are changing the planet faster than other species can evolve to adapt to. And you open the book, The Sixth Extinction, with this beautiful way of talking about humankind, but you don't describe us by a name until a couple of three pages into it. You just talk about this new species. Help my audience understand what you were trying to get across with this new species and what it did and what it meant to the planet that it was starting on from a very small piece of land, uh, if I recall correctly, in uh, Northern Africa. So the, the beginning of the book, which is just sort of an overview of Earth's history, you know, right. human history, starting, as you say, back in the plains of Africa, where, where we evolved as a species, that's, that's pretty clear, um, and then spread out from there. And at first, you know, our impacts were, were fairly minimal, but even when people left, left Africa and settled in, in new parts of the world, we see a lot of the big animals going extinct in North America, in South America, in Australia, as soon as humans uh, hit, hit those new places. And the theory there is just, you know, humans are hunters, we're very good hunters, and we uh, are very adaptable, we adapt to new surroundings. So when you imagine that a new species coming in, even with some not terribly sophisticated technology, just, you know, spears, basically, uh, that the local fauna have never encountered before, then those animals that are big and slow and slow to reproduce uh, are very vulnerable. And, and that is what we see. We see this wave of extinctions back many, many thousands of years as soon as humans got to a new part of the world. And now in the you know, 21st century, we are such a global force, such a powerful force that you know, people have coined this term, the Anthropocene, that we live in a new geological epoch that's really defined by our impacts on the planet. And to underscore your point, species suffered in our presence before we found and used carbon as an energy source. But once we did that, within a matter of decades, our footprint, if you will, if not became more lethal, certainly became more damaging. True? Yeah, I mean, we... You know, carbon uh, is one of the major ways, our release of carbon, you know, buried carbon, carbon that's been buried underground that we're just shoveling out of the ground, basically, and putting into the atmosphere. That is one of the ways that we are changing the planet 
from the perspective of other species really, really fast. I mean, this is just something that probably doesn't have any analog, you know, in the history of the planet. Cause when you think about it, you know, what other creature could really burn through a lot of carbon? There just you know, aren't any. Right. We're the ones who discovered it. We're the ones who've done it. And reading another great book, The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells, I learned that half of the carbon in our atmosphere now, we have pumped into it in the last 30 years. 30 years ago is when the United Nations built its first framework to approach the issue of climate change. So David Wallace Wells writes in his book, we have put as much carbon in the air knowingly as we did unknowingly. True? Yeah. And that's a very, you know, there's a very damning statistic. Um, and, you know, you can go online and find. And I, I found it honestly astonishing. I really did. I, I, that one is one of the statistics. And there are many in both of these great, bo- great books that completely blew me away. Yeah, it's um, it doesn't reflect terribly well on us. I mean, what happened during those last 30 years is, um, you know, one of the really big things that happened is is emissions in China really, really took off. I, I, I don't know the percentage of the increase in the last 30 years that, um, but China overtook the US. The US was the world's largest emitter and continues to be, I think it's important for your listeners to know that carbon hangs around in the atmosphere for a long time. So the important thing is how much is up there in aggregate. And in aggregate sense, when you add it all together, we are still the biggest emitters, the U.S., but on an annual basis, uh, China overtook us in around 2006, and their emissions have continued to grow while emissions in the U.S. are kind of flat right now. Right, and India is coming right up behind China. We're going to talk about that dynamic, and we're also going to talk more detail about Under a White Sky, Elizabeth Colbert's newest book, which talks about ways that in which technology might or might not be able to address some of this. Fascinating conversation ahead. I guarantee all of you stick with us. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to The Takeout, segment two, coming up in just a second. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now... New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. I'm Major Garrett. Our special guest this week is Elizabeth Colbert. She is a staff writer at the New Yorker magazine. She's written two amazing books. I'm halfway through both of them. One is The Sixth Extinction. That came out in 2014. Won the Pulitzer Prize. And in February, Under a White Sky came out. About halfway through that, just got the digital copy of it this morning. So it was a lot of speed reading on my part. Elizabeth, give my audience a sense of what Under a White Sky is about. And is there anything that you would regard as net, net more hopeful 
than people could find in the sixth extinction? Well, Under a White Sky is sort of um, a book about ways in which people have intervened in the natural world, changed the natural world, and are now looking uh, for ways to, to change it again because we didn't really like the impacts of what uh, the ways that we changed it the first time around. How's that? Um, and this is happening more and more as our impacts get, you know, become greater and greater and the consequences become larger and larger. And I, I hesitate to, you know, pronounce whether any of these things are going to work or not. That's really an open question in the book. Um, but I do think the one point I guess I would make is that, you know, we're increasingly faced with situations where the options aren't great. You know, the options are more intervention um, or, you know, watching species go extinct in some cases, watching the climate continue to change. Um, we're not, we, we don't always have the choices that, that we, we wish we had. And I want to dig, dig a little bit more deeply into the thing that set some of those topics you mentioned in motion and are featured in Under a White Sky, this idea that man could control nature and that should control nature and that there was nothing wrong with mankind exerting providential control over nature. Uh, that has come back to bite us more often than not, correct? Well, I think that is exactly right. That is what we're seeing that a lot of, I mean, on one level, look, we're, we're all here. Uh, in in large in in good measure, uh, you know, what, one one important development in the history of humanity has been, for example, the development of nitrogen fertilizers. We've completely changed the world by with synthetic fertilizers, and many billions of us. I mean, I'm here, you're here because of that. We we would really have a hard time feeding the world right now without that. Um, but we also, so I don't want to say that, you know, the march of technology has not brought many benefits to, to humanity, but we're also realizing that there are a lot of unintended consequences, one of which are these very high extinction rates. Uh, and another which, which is very intimately related, as you suggested, is that we're changing the climate in ways that could, you know, seriously erode a lot of the agricultural advances that we have made over the last centuries. Right. And I don't want people to say, Major, what a hypocrite you are. You're sitting in your dining room. You have a dining room table right in front of you. You are speaking into a Logitech camera that is sending this digital signal through a laptop computer to Elizabeth, and she's talking back to you. All of this is harness technology. All of this is a carbon footprint. What gives, dude? What's, what's your problem? I don't have a problem. I, I acknowledge all of that. I benefit, and I've said on the show a hundred times, especially during the pandemic, I've probably in my class of work benefited more than any class of workers in America because I haven't had to take many risks. I Yes, I want to call me hypocrite, fine. But that doesn't mean the totality of this process is benign. And I guess that's what I'm trying to drive at, Elizabeth. Agreed? Yeah, no, absolutely. You can, bo both can be true. It can be true that we as individuals and even that human society overall uh, has benefited from technology. And it can also be true that there are many consequences that are dangerous um, and that are, are building. How's that? Those can both be true at the same time. So talk to my audience a little bit about something that uh, you raise in both books. And I think it's fascinating. What happens and is happening and has happened to our oceans, how it affects coral reefs, what acidity in water 
saltwater means and how that has potentially deep consequences for the way we live, eat, and exist. So the oceans are really, you know, we're, we're land animals, so we don't pay enough attention to the oceans, really. But the oceans, you know, if, if you ask what is the biggest defining feature of planet Earth, it is really these oceans, which are, first off, absorbing most of the heat that the extra heat that is, you know, trapped near the surface of the Earth because of all of our carbon emissions. So the oceans are warming very fast uh, on a, in a sort of geological sense. Um, and they're also, the oceans also actually absorb about roughly, let's say a third of the CO2 that we've put up there has already been absorbed by the oceans. And what happens when the oceans, when CO2 dissolves in water is it forms an acid, carbonic acid. It's, it's a weak acid. I saw you were drinking some Perrier. That's, you know, you're drinking car- carbonic acid. Um, but you add enough of it, you add enough of it to the oceans and you're changing the chemistry. So, you know, people will remember from high school chemistry, you know, the pH of the oceans, the pH of the oceans is dropping. We can document that that's, you know, not, not disputed, not debated. And one thing that that does when you make things more, when you acidify the oceans, uh, they're not actually becoming acidic, but they're becoming more towards the acid uh, side of the scale is it becomes harder for creatures that build shells and calcifiers, right? Yes. Calcifiers. And it turns out that, you know, there are gazillions of creatures like this there. These range from, you know, the things we like to eat mussels and oysters to these very tiny little creatures uh, called coccolithophores. For example, if anyone's ever been to the white cliffs of Dover, in England, that's just a buildup of, you know, many millions of years worth of coccolithophores on the bottom of the ocean. They're, they're tiny, they're at the bottom of the food chain. So we're really affecting the marine food web and we're really, really having a bad impact on coral reefs, as you mentioned, which are sort of the nurseries of the ocean. Roughly a quarter of all marine species spend part of their lives on coral reefs. They're just amazingly rich with life. And corals, which are these tiny little gelatinous animals that build coral reefs, it's pretty clear they don't like these changes. They are not well suited to them. And so that's why reefs are having such a hard time right now. And in the book, uh, Under a White Sky, which came out in February, there's a chapter devoted to a project that you took a look at in Hawaii that attempted to test the proposition as, as to whether or not a dying coral reef could be brought back to life. Did that, and does that give us any indications of whether that's possible or scalable? Yeah, well, so one of the, so the thinking behind that project, which has sort of been nicknamed the super coral project was, look, we, re- we know that corals already don't like the conditions that we've created in the oceans. And those conditions are, are pretty much fated to get worse. There's, it's pretty hard to imagine how they won't get worse in the coming decades. And if we want to have coral reefs around for our kids and our grandkids, are we going to have to intervene again to somehow sort of create these, you know, super corals that could withstand warmer water temperatures? And it's a really interesting idea. And the question, you know, honestly, from a practical 
perspective is, is it possible? You know, is it possible? Do you, is, is, is human, can, could humans, I mean, this involves crossbreeding calls to see if we could get more resilient varieties, but ultimately on the horizon as well, it's the question of could you, could you genetically engineer corals that are more heat tolerant? So there are all sorts of potential technological interventions. Uh, the question of is would they work? That's question number one. We don't have the answer to that yet. And then the other question that becomes very complicated is scale, because the Great Barrier Reef in Australia is the size of Italy. You know, so you think to yourself and dying. Yeah. And if you think to yourself, well, we would like to, you know, reseed this reef, let's say that's the size of Italy. Well, that's that's not that's no small task. Right. That's not done by a 3D printer. Is exactly. It? Exactly. <laughs> and then there's the other uh, question, which is raised in a couple of other chapters in Under a White Sky. Uh, OK. Uh, humankind meddled once. Oh, the the answer is more meddling, right? That's that's how we're going to fix it. We're going to meddle some more. We're going to ponder that larger philosophical construct on the other side of this break. Elizabeth Colbert is our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. Segment three of the takeout in just a moment. From CBS News, this is the takeout with Major Garrett. As you know, dear listeners and viewers, we love books on this show. We also love the planet and uh, humankind generally. Uh, and that's the topic this week. Uh, in addition to this show, my other podcast, The Debrief, the documentary podcast, two episodes, not just one, but two, devoted to climate change and the future of the planet. Our special guest is Elizabeth, Col- Elizabeth Colbert. She is a staff writer at The New Yorker. Two books, The Sixth Extinction 2014 won the Pulitzer Prize. Her brand new book came out in February, Under a White Sky. So it's under... It's a kind of a constant theme in the discussion in Under a White Sky. Uh, yes, humanity's meddled once, twice, many, many times. Is the answer to previous meddling that's gone awry still more meddling? What do you think? What should we think about the answer to that question? Well, I I very, very um, consciously have that. Leave, leave that to you to decide, dear reader. Right. Uh, I think that there's a, a you know really valid... Um, you know, take the coral example, you know, can, can we do this? Should we do this? Uh, one really reasonable reaction would be, well, we don't have any choice, but to try, you know, what, what are our options? They're not, Why not give it a go. Right. Yeah. And another, and another reasonable response would be, you know, you, you, you messed it up once. What are the odds that you're going to, you know, save it this time? So, you know, both are really reasonable responses. And I, I don't have the answer to that question. I just, feel very confident that that's the pattern. That's a situation that we're in where we don't have a lot of great choices. And I came across a phrase, it's just a two word phrase, but I'd like you to tell my listeners and viewers what it means and what it portends. And maybe the second answer is harder than the first one, assisted evolution. Yeah. So assisted evolution is the idea um, in this, in this coral, uh, you know, effort to, breed hardier corals it's just sort of hybridized corals and you know you could say well one response to what's happening on reefs is corals have this really interesting way of reproducing um a lot of them are hermaphrodites so they're both male and female and uh once a year they release these little um bundles of both sperm and eggs they look like little pink glass beads they're very beautiful 
and they all do it at the same time because it's, it's a mass spawning event and they're supposed to meet each other. Uh, and it's an amazing sight. And so one thought as well, if corals are going to, if there are more resilient, you know, breeds out there, they will find each other and they will take over. That's how evolution works, right? You know, survival of the fittest. Um, but the thinking behind assisted evolution is some corals will not meet each other naturally. They're too far apart. For example, they some might live on the southern end of the reef, some on the northern end. But perhaps if we bring them together, you know, in a bucket, and I have watched this process as well, we will find hardier varieties that would not occur in nature. And that's basically the idea of assisted assisting evolution, giving it a nudge um, in, in, the, in the right direction, in the direction that, that we think is, is, is going to be most helpful for the corals. And there's another concept that you tackle in the book, Under a White Sky, that I'd like you to talk about because as I started to research possible remedies and possible interventions, technological and otherwise, they came across this phrase over and over, carbon capture, capturing carbon, storing it, putting it in something. And you went to a place that does this, uh, that, as you say in the book, uh, turns some segment of your carbon release into a rock that was pocked with white uh, specks um, without going into enormous detail. But in a couple of minutes, let us let, let us wrap our minds about what that is. Again, it's all about a matter of scale and practicality. Yeah, I mean, in the case of, of carbon removal, I guess we would call it carbon removal, um, Carbon capture usually refers to we are capturing carbon at the smokestack of, let's say, a power plant where it's pretty concentrated. And that, that is something they're, they're intimately related, has that. So that's one mm -hmm. thing. Another technology, related technology is just called direct air capture. It's just carbon that's floating around in the air. It's very low concentration, but you can still remove the CO2 out of it. And you do it in the same way in both cases, uh, you are basically binding the CO2 to some kind of chemical. And then you're getting the chemical to release the CO2. You're putting it somewhere, you know, and then putting it somewhere is uh, an interesting problem. Usually underground is the idea. And the project I visited in Iceland was putting it into the volcanic rock that is Iceland, you know, and it, we're deep underground, about a mile underground, and it was reacting with that rock to form calcium carbonate. And so it was mineralizing and lithifying and, and being stored permanently. So that's kind of a best case you know, scenario. Um, we do know how to do it. As you know, I was there, I've been there, uh, I've seen it done. But the issue, once again, as you suggested, as you mentioned, gets back to scale, right? So, you know, this project- that I visited in Iceland has recently grown. So they are trying to take out, I think, um, maybe 4,000 tons a year of CO2. Now we emit on the planet every year, humanity emits 40 billion tons of CO2. So, you know, you can do the math and figure out how many projects like this you would need to counteract uh, one year of emissions. Right. And it's not just CO2, it's methane, it's nitrous oxide. And if Bill Gates's numbers in his most recent book, How to Avoid a Climate Crisis, is correct, it's 51 billion tons of carbon equivalents every yes, year. Yes, exactly. Right. Yes, exactly. So that's a huge, huge number. And I want to quote also from your book, Under a White Sky. So we had the pandemic, carbon emissions globally went down. But by May of 2020, you write, they went to 400 and 17.1 parts per million. 
that is uh, near a record, isn't it? Well, every year we hit a new record. We just hit another new record of 420 parts per million. Um, we always hit the highest CO2. CO2 has a seasonal component because CO2 gets taken up by plants. So the really highest levels come at the end of the Northern Hemisphere winter. So we just hit a new record. And now they will start to drop slightly, but they will always keep, the highs will always keep getting higher and the lows are going to keep getting higher. So we are on that cycle of only higher and higher. And the point that I was making in the book, which is a really key point, I think, unfortunately, uh, is because CO2 hangs around, because it is something that just builds up and builds up. Even if you stop the slow the rate that you're putting it in to the air, uh, you still keep getting an increase. And, and the analogy that's used, it's not my analogy, but I think it's a good one, is to a bathtub. If you're filling a tub and you have the stopper in the bottom and you slow the rate that the water is going in, your, your tub's still going to overflow eventually. So that is why... And I'm sure your listeners have, have heard, you know, all this talk of net zero. We have to reach zero. It's only when we reach z net zero that that number is going to stop going up. Right. And I, I want to give you a chance to weigh in on this uh, question and we'll carry your answer over into the next break. So don't feel constrained by time, but get yourself warmed up and, and start talking. We talked to Gina McCarthy last week for episode one of The Debrief. She is the top climate advisor to President Biden, as you are fully aware. She's been in the trenches of the environmental policy movement for more than 30 years. She said, you know, Major, all these framings, and they're not scientifically wrong, but they just depress people. They get them so full of doom that they do one of two things. They run away from me or they put their head in the sand. And I can't have this conversation anymore. I have got to talk to them about hope and possibility. Do you think there's anything logical about that or does that strike you as illogical? Well, I think that that gets to the basic question of, look, we have to act in the face of, you know, some pretty bad news. You know, we have to kind of be willing to, to, to grow up, as it were, and not just put our head in the sand, even though, you know, at the end of the day, it's not like everything's just going to be, you know, perfect. <laughs> we have to realize that there's a lot of, you know, damage that's been done that's kind of baked into the system you know, California is going to have another terrible wildfire season this year. That's pretty clear. Um, you know, I don't know what the hurricane season is going to look like, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we're not going to avoid, but we have to try. There's a phrase in climate circles, which I think is useful. We have to try to, uh, you know, manage the unavoidable and avoid the unmanageable. And that is the situation that we're in. And we need to just, you know, put aside this question of, being hopeful, not being hopeful, and just say, okay, we can have a leave a real a serious problem for our kids, or we can leave a disastrous problem for our kids. You know, Bill Gates's book is titled How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. Right. That is the voice of Elizabeth Colbert, our special guest. Stay tuned for segment four of the takeout on this fascinating conversation, which I promise will continue, get even deeper on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. Stay with us. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. 
Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. So point of personal privilege here. Uh, If you are curious about this topic, and if you're still with us, I know you are, I can't really recommend too strongly uh, the books I've mentioned in the course of this conversation. The Sixth Extinction, here it is. You can see it if you're watching CBSN. Elizabeth Colbert, her book, Under a White Sky. Also, The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells and Bill Gates' book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. I've learned a great deal from all three. I know there's a whole canon of literature on this, but those are the ones I found. Those are the ones I've read, and they're all great, and they're all accessible to someone who, like me, isn't a scientist and isn't a climate specialist, but wants to learn about what's going on and what are the range of choices. So, Elizabeth, if you were to try to explain to somebody across um, a bar stool uh, or a luncheonette, what are our range of choices? Um, what would you try to begin to convey to them? Well, I think that one thing that's key to mention, and I assume that Gina McCarthy, you know, made this point, um, is that we do have a lot of technologies that we could be, you know, implementing at a at a much faster rate. Than R- we are ramping up, yes, for sure. Right now, and we we waste a lot of energy. We still waste a lot of energy. So we could really dramatically reduce our energy use, and we could be producing a much greater proportion of it from you know, carbon, what are called carbon-free sources. So before we even have any great technological breakthroughs, uh, we could be doing a lot more. Now, there are, you know, certain, that last bit, let's say, of decarbonizing the electric grid, of, you know, moving to electric vehicles, which we're, we're going to do, and we're going to have to do, because uh, internal combustion engines are, one, really super inefficient, uh, they just don't convert a lot of energy into motion. And two, you know, they, they depend on fossil fuels and we've just got to move away from that. Um, so there are, you know, there's all sorts of talk about, you know, when, when the Texas grid went down, there was a lot of misinformation about why that grid went down. It did not go down because they were using a lot of wind. Texas does use a lot of wind. That is not why. They, they just don't want to admit it. Yeah, exactly. 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 One of the ironies of the situation is a major oil producing state that is also a major wind power producing state. Um, and so, but there are. But the, fr- but the framing was, oh, the renewables got led us down this rabbit yeah. hole wrong the, yeah. the 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 existing fossil fuel stuff wasn't weatherized that's what happened yeah no it's crazy it's it's absolutely crazy what happened there um but it was you know it, it was predictable predict predictable and predicted not just predictable predicted but um you know, and there's a question there, a genuine question, whether these sorts of weather extremes, that was an extreme cold event. So people will say, well, how can that you know, be global warming? But one question is whether certain weather extremes are also increasing owing to climate change. And, and you know, you can debate which term is better, global warming or climate change. But, but there might have even been a, a climate change component to that really big cold snap. I, I don't know that people have determined that that's a complicated question. Well, one thing that we do know, and Jeff Berardelli, who is a meteorologist for CBS and a climate specialist, talked to us again for the debrief. And he said, look, whatever your terminology, weather is more extreme. 
And the climate changing is making that extreme more noticeable and more deadly, period. End of stop. Full stop. Right. right. That's all That's all a fact. And look at the data around the Houston area. I lived in Houston from 1988 to 1990 when I worked at the Houston Post, a newspaper that no longer exists, but I was glad it was there when, it, when I was there. Uh, in the Houston area, they had Hurricane Harvey, a one in 500,000 year event. And then in the intervening years, they've had two more one in 500 year flooding events. So you just have to ask yourself, wait a minute, are yeah. these one in 500 year, one in 500,000, are they even normative anymore? Do they even tell us anything anymore? Yeah, no, that's a huge, huge issue for, you know, disaster planning in the US. You know, what we considered the one in a hundred year flood is obviously, that's no longer, those figures are no longer valid. And that there are a lot of people living in flood zones. Um, we've always had a problem with that. Um, you know, there's a lot of development that has occurred in places that, you know, honestly, it probably shouldn't have. And climate change are, is going to make rebuilding there and rebuilding again, you know, that much more problematic. So I want to ask you on this question of um, investment or what we have to spend to try to do this. We talked to two women last week uh, who are with the Sunrise Movement, this organization of environmental and climate activists, also aligned with good jobs, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college kids. And both of us said, you know, we're all all on board with Biden at $2 trillion, but we're with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We want $10 trillion. I'm not asking you to put your thumb on either scale, but in order of magnitude, uh, is... Two trillion sufficient, or should we be thinking about that on kind of an ongoing basis to deal with the kind of things that need to be spent to retrofit the way we live our lives? Well, I think that two trillion. I mean, the one thing that's important to say about the infrastructure plan is only a a fraction of that. And I haven't you know gone through line by line and done the math, but a lot of that money is not going to anything that would you know reduce carbon emissions. In fact, something that concerns me is that some of it might be going to activities that increase carbon emissions. So you, you could get this way in which, you know, you don't get as much, you know, bang for your buck because things are moving in contradictory directions. But let's put that aside for a moment and say- Kind you of know, the American way. Exactly, exactly. You covered <laughs> politics long enough to know that one. Um, I think that, you know, what you need to do, you know, Yes, you, you need many trillions of dollars to completely remake the American energy infrastructure uh, for the future. But, you know, part of that will be government money. And part of that, the idea is to try to leverage, you know, private investment. There's also a lot of money to be made uh, in this energy transition. Um, so I don't know, you know, exactly how much it would cost to replace America's infrastructure, but the point is also, and, you know, build back better is, is a good, is, is not a bad slogan. We have, you know, terrible infrastructure in this country. We are lagging behind most developed nations uh, in, in the quality of our public transportation. We don't have a decent rail system. So, you know, there's replacing our, you know, bad infrastructure. And then there's also trying to get better infrastructure. And without belaboring the point, we've got a minute to go before I need to close out part of the show. Steel and concrete, their production is a carbon heavy process, is it not? Yes. And people have pointed out, it's once again, it's not rocket science that, um, you know, in the short term, a lot of these projects will have, you know, could 
push carbon emissions in the U.S. up. If you're manufacturing a lot of steel, if you're doing it here in the U.S., concrete, those are processes that are really hard to get the carbon out of. They're just you know chemical reactions. It's really hard to do them without producing CO2. Elizabeth Colbert, I could talk to you for six or seven hours. I would enjoy that. I'm not sure you would, but I know I would enjoy it. It's been a tremendous pleasure to talk to you. For our radio audience, we need to bid you farewell. For those on CBSN and our podcast platform, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. More with Elizabeth Colbert in that segment. But for the radio audience, farewell. We'll see you next week. I'm Major Garrett. It's been the Takeout. Thanks so much. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I am Major Garrett. Elizabeth Colbert is our special guest, staff writer of New Yorker magazine, author of Under a White Sky that came out in February, also author of the Pulitzer Prize winning The Sixth Extinction that came out in 2014. Elizabeth, this is the fun and games segment of our program. The topic is not one that necessarily lends itself to fun and games, but you have traveled the world. You've seen a lot of fascinating things. And I'm curious, uh, in the adventures for these two books, if you want to call them that, was there anything that strikes you as the most fun or funner than you expected? Well, I was fort- I've was i been fortunate enough to, um, and this gets back to what we were talking about, visit the Great Barrier Reef and a pretty um, a, a part of the Great Barrier Reef that's still pretty intact. Although, you know, people who know it very well will say you can see the damage, but to a first time visitor, um, it was spectacular, the most spectacular place I've ever been. Um, And so I guess that is one of the highlights of my research uh, was to visit, uh, it was a place called One Tree Island uh, in the Great Barrier Reef, a tiny little island um, where there's a tiny little research station and you could go right off the island snorkeling on the reef. The island is really part of the reef. Um, And, you know, it was sort of the only way I can describe it was like, it was like being in a Jacques Cousteau special, you know, it was just extraordinary. So uh, along the lines of Great Barrier Reef and Australia, you know, there was a meme that developed early on in the pandemic that before the pandemic began, if you were to try to imagine what one of the biggest stories on the globe would have been in 2020, you would have started with the wildfires in Australia. Because in isolation, pre-pandemic, they were in every way jaw-dropping, eye-popping and scarier than hell. I'll just say that on my behalf. And they, that, that they have been overtaken by the pandemic doesn't make them any less of a cautionary tale. True? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was actually in Australia just um, a few months before the really bad fires, but there were already fires starting. Uh, and they, they, you would see a crawl on the news. And it was, if, if you were in these towns, you know, I, I don't remember where they were. It was in the Sydney area. But if you're there, it is too late to evacuate, you know, try to take shelter. Now, that is not something that you want uh, to hear. Um, and Australia is one of those parts of the world. And it's, it's a pretty interesting part of the world, um, you know, which relies heavily on extractive industries. There's a lot of mining. There's a lot of coal mining. Uh, and is also really, really being severely affected by climate change. It's a very dry part of the world that's becoming drier. 
and it's just a tinderbox, basically, uh, a fire waiting to happen. That's not exactly in the fun and games category. No, I not really. But, no, no. <laughs> but I wanted to touch upon it. Um, now, here are the three questions we ask all of our guests. The show is going into its fifth year, so we've gotten a wide range of answers. Our audience loves to hear the answers. So uh, you could take these questions in any order. Uh, most influential book that you've read in your life or one of them. All-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies. And if you're going to really indulge yourself musically on a long flight or maybe a long drive, uh, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Okay. Well, I'll take it. My favorite movie um, is Dr. Strangelove. Uh, I'm a real fan of of dark comedy, um, as uh, I hope comes through in Under White Sky. Um, Indeed. So that, that, uh, that's, that's, that was an easy one. Um the book that had the biggest influence on my life was, it's a bit of a, of a weird one. I read um, uh, Goethe's Faust in college. And as a result of that, decided to learn German. And that took my life in a complicated path. Uh, so it was, I, I, it, it was extremely influential just in that weird serendipitous way. Um, and Mm, what I would take on a long trip is, uh, I guess, anything by uh, Miles Davis or, or John Coltrane. I'm a big uh, fan of, of classical jazz. You said the magic words. If uh, this were Groucho Marx's show, the little bird would fall <laughs> right off from the studio lights because that's what I would do. It would always be Coltrane. It would always be Miles, some combination. Uh, any of their, the rare sets... Uh, where I believe they played together, but anything that they did individually, uh, their entire careers, beginning, middle, and end, full of innovation. Um, Coltrane, uh, certain parts of it, you have to be in a real mood. Uh, if you're just, oh, what's what's going on? What, what should I listen to? I mean, you need to prepare yourself for some of the yeah. more aggressive yeah, uh, sax playing. Miles. I mean, both of them. <laughs> but it's all spectacular, yeah. and uh, yeah. I can disappear in all of that for sure. So I'm delighted to hear that. Um, one last thing uh, before we let you go. Um, leave my audience with something that you hope that they take away from our conversation. Yeah, well, I hope people take away from your, uh, this conversation and your whole series, which I think is a really great idea and really important, uh, that we, we really just need to get on with the job of you know, getting off fossil fuels. And there are ways to do it that will you know, minimize the impacts on people working in the fossil fuel industry. Um, but it's just you know, there will be some dislocations. I, I acknowledge that completely, but we need, we need for the sake of our kids and our grandkids uh, to just do it, bite the bullet and do it uh, and do it as fairly and as equitably as possible. That's the final word. Elizabeth Colbert, our special guest. It's been a great honor and pleasure of mine. Thank you so much. We hope to see you in the future. Thanks for having me. It's a takeout, everyone. See you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. 
Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.